In this podcast, we'll discuss the last time the word war was used to describe a conflict, Articles 1 and 2 in the Constitution, and how they relate to the current issue of foreign affairs as well as ISIS and the threat to the U.S. But before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Media Angels. Media Angels is the publisher of the American History and American Government and Election Classes taught by Professor Wilson. Be sure to visit MediaAngels.com for more information. And now, let's begin today's episode. On the current issues and the Constitution show, Professor Wilson will encourage you to stay informed and read the U.S. Constitution. The show is intended to shine a light on current issues that impact your daily life. Professor Wilson has twice received the American History Teacher of the Year Award in the state of West Virginia and is the recipient of many honors. He served in the armed forces and is currently a college professor. He is a true patriot who believes the understanding of the Constitution is key to our future and our future freedoms rest with informed youth. Please join us live where you can ask questions or listen on your time. Just follow the show feed to receive the latest shows delivered right to you. Don't miss any of these informative episodes. Are you ready? Take out a copy of the U.S. Constitution, a notepad, and let's get ready to learn. Well, hi and welcome. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and I am on the line with Professor Wilson, and we took a little bit of a hiatus, and we are back now uh, with great information about timely events. And actually, no matter when you're listening to this show, you're going to find nuggets of information that you can use in, in your daily lives. Welcome, Professor Wilson. Um, we have a very exciting show lineup today. Thank you, Felice. And as usual, I am very happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy as well. And for those of you listening in the archives or on, t- or on iTunes, um, or some other way that you're listening on your phones, there is an ha- a handout that is wonderful, and it has all kinds of information on here, um, up-to-date um, election races. There's uh, realclearpolitics.com is on here, um, information about the uh, Ten Amendments to the Constitution, um, an educational website that has primary source documents and so forth. So if you would, um, go to currentissuesandtheconstitution.com and look for um, information about today's show. And Woody, um, I, I don't have the name of the show yet in my mind, so I won't give you that. I'm sorry. Um, I can probably give you an, a direct um, place to go to get the handout. Um, but right now, Woody, um, I want you to just fill us in a little bit on um, what you want to cover today, and then we can go ahead and get started. Uh, we're going to talk about foreign affairs. Um, something that uh, uh, has really come to light in, well, actually since World War II, we've been deeply involved in foreign affairs, foreign relations. In this regard, we call our president chief diplomat. And in conflict situations, uh, we join chief diplomat with commander-in-chief. He has a lot of power and responsibility, but so does Congress. And we want to take a look at that. By folk and how it works by focusing on a group called ISIS. If you've been following current events, and I am sure you have, homeschool students do that. 
It's one of the reasons you score 30% higher in testing than do public and private schools. Uh, current, by following current events, it's, it's an education in and of itself. You learn so much. Uh, so we're going to take a look at uh, the Constitution, the President, the Congress, um, ISIS, uh, foreign affairs, foreign policy as it exists right now. Okay, very good. Well, you gave me uh, the name of this podcast, so um, look for Foreign Affairs-ISIS, and that will be the name of the post on the current issues and the Constitution.com website, and you'll find it there. Okay, Woody, well, you know, it, it has been mind-boggling because no matter where I um, tune in and listen to the news, that really is taking uh, center stage no matter what channel it's on and also, you know, news feeds that come through on the Internet. Uh, and it really, it, the Middle East is a, is a hotbed, which it has been. Um, almost since the beginning of time, um, it's been a place where, you know, Christians are very interested in this area as well as um, Muslims. So one of the things you asked um, at the beginning of this broadcast, actually before we went on the air, and that was that the students take out a copy of a map of the Middle East. And I just went to uh, google.com forward slash maps and I did a search of Middle East, and I'm looking at one right now on my computer. Um, if you have a world atlas, you may want to take that out as well. And also, they're going to need a, uh, the um, Constitution, which you should always have a copy of the Constitution for these episodes, because Professor Wilson wants you to look at specific articles and sections. And um, in the handout, there's there are some specific ones that he wanted us to look at today, um, Article 1 and Article 2 in particular, and specific sections under each. So what's happening out there, or do you want to um, – is that how you want to start with, with ISIS, Woody? Yes, I think um, in my lifetime, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, uh, when I was growing up, in the 1950s and then became a, an adult in the 1960s, uh, we talked about, we frequently talked about Central America and South America and how there was always a revolution going on down there and people sang songs about it and even made jokes about it, uh, the fiery temperament of the Latin mentality and all of that stuff. And Mideast, Middle East, um, we I don't think we ever talked about that region of the world. It was at that time, uh, well, I guess it was so far away. Central and South mm -hmm. America, uh, North America were joined across the Atlantic Ocean, across the Mediterranean Sea to find the Middle East. So it wasn't much of a topic. And um, we came alert to it in 1972 at the Olympics when Arab terrorists murdered nine Israeli athletes at the Olympics. Then we began to pay attention, and we've paid attention ever since. And Felice is right. If you look at their history, it's a history of conflict and violence, and that is going on and on and on. Now, we've um, watched the Arab Spring uh, uprisings in 19 different countries from the beginning in 2010, and continuing today. But this one, this group called ISIS, I-S-I-S, -I -S, 
Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or sometimes it, in the media you'll see it called ISIL, I-S-I-L, Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. The Levant are the countries on the western edge of the um, whole Middle East area and on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And we'll get into that um, in more detail later on. Uh, but this is the worst that we have seen. This is the most threatening that we have seen. You have probably heard uh, President Obama trying to dismiss it as a regional conflict. It is far more than that. And it is a graver threat to the United States than was al-Qaeda. And we'll get into their history and development and what they are doing now and what they're capable of in the future in a few minutes. But first, let's... Um, review the history of foreign affairs in America. I like to, always like to begin with a George Washington quote. And by the way, his farewell speech after two terms as president is a primary source that you should study and read. Uh, he, you know, one of the things that he, he uh, was amused with, or I'm not sure amused or burdened, uh, when he was president early on, he re realized and said that, that um, in so many words, uh, the pressure on me is extreme because everything I do as the first president is a precedent for the future, and indeed it was. And after eight years and, and sitting in concert with great minds like Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, who were all a part of the administration, um, the lessons to Washington were very, very clear about America, American democracy, American freedom, uh, the instruments of government and the instruments of power that the Constitution provides and what America needs to focus on to develop this democracy and preserve this democracy into the future. And it's all right there, beautiful. Many of the things we still adhere to. Some, over time, you know, it's been 226 years since 1789 when the uh, first government began. And so needless to say, a great deal has changed. And certainly the delegates that wrote the uh, Constitution in 1787, from their perspective, could not have seen what was coming, especially in the latter part of the 20th century and our part of the 21st century. So things have changed, and the Constitution uh, remains solid. It is basically, it's, the, the Constitution, people call it the government. It's actually a framework for government, allowing men in Congress, in the courts, in the White, in White House, the executive branch, uh, to shape and define um, American policy as it becomes necessary, focusing on one thing that's paramount to everything else, and that is the security of the American people, national security. Well, one of George Washington's tips, and you will find it when you read his uh, farewell address, and by the way, I warn you, it's a very long document. You might want to do it over a period of days. He says, in terms of foreign affairs, that the United States should, and this is a quote, avoid alliances and maintain neutrality among nations. That's basically a statement for what, in the late 19th century would be called isolationism. Okay, we're going to trade and we're going to send out diplomats and we're going to build embassies, but we are going to re we're not going to make alliances with anybody. 
We're not going to be drawn into entanglements that bring us into the wars of France and Spain and Great Britain and, and Russia and all of the others. We're going to stay out of that. We're going to maintain neutrality among nations. And we did that. We did that. Uh, George Washington was basically a demigod. Uh, the people worshipped him. And for many decades in presidential administrations and congresses afterwards, we adhered to that to that viewpoint, avoid alliances, maintain neutrality among nations. Well, in the 20th century, where we were drug into two world wars, and after the first world war, we retreated back into isolationism, dismissed the military, and um, went back to our peaceful way of life. Second World War, we're drawn in again after Pearl Harbor, and uh, so we forget um, the avoidance of alliances, and we forsake neutrality in order to defeat two great and evil empires, and we did. Now, after World War II, it was assumed, and most people believed, that we would retreat back into our isolationism, our neutrality, and then came the Soviet Union, this big, huge, atheistic, communist power that was swallowing up countries in Eastern Europe and in Southern Asia. And the decision was made by the American people and by the government that represented us that uh, we could just not retreat back to our side of the Atlantic and let these thugs do what they were doing. Isolationism was over with. Washington's admonishment forgotten. We became the leader of the free world and remain the leader of the free world and in so doing became a superpower until 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Finally, we won. It was over with. 19 new countries were born out of that empire. Most of them became democracies. Most of them sent delegations to the United States immediately uh, to make alliances with us. Today, we're the lonely superpower. Um, without question, we're, the United States is probably, in the military sense, more powerful than the rest of the world combined. Even though this president is decreasing uh, the military, we still remain the world's number one superpower. So. We are still the world's leader, or at least we had been until 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. And now we see new things happening. And we will get into that, but first, I think it's very important that we get a basis for our discussion, and that basis has just got to be the United States Constitution. Now, hopefully, um, you have already gone through uh, the information that was sent to you. We'll begin with Article 1, Section 8, if you want to turn to that part of the Constitution. And we'll talk about it. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try, and it's hard for me, but I'm going to try to be very brief about this. But we'll keep bouncing back to it as we discuss uh, various aspects of foreign affairs. Now, in the introduction to Section 8, shall, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, and we're looking for basically um, powers given to Congress that have to do with foreign affairs. Well, the word duties, if you didn't know what that meant, you probably looked it up and found out that it means tariff or taxes on imports and exports. 
So right away, even in the introduction to Section 8, where the powers of Congress are enumerated, we give Congress uh, the power to lay and collect tariffs on imports, not on exports. That's prohibited by the Constitution. But the federal government can tax imports. Now, reading on, it says, provide for the common defense. Well, defense against what? Defense against Oh, it could be insurrection within the United States, but it could also be, and it probably was meant to uh, to be, uh, defense against foreign powers. Because there were some great empires out there at that time, and there are still some very dangerous people out there at that time. And there are people that challenge um, us, and in doing so, pose a potential threat to the national security, to the safety and well-being of the American people. So we have to pay attention to that, and we have to, re to respond to it. So Congress can provide for the common defense. Now, keep in mind that everything we're looking at, well, most of the things we're looking at in Section 8 are subject to interpretation. So Congress provides for the common defense. Well, what does provide for mean? What does that mean they can do? And this is the beauty of the Constitution. It doesn't put down specific bullets uh, that explain a phrase like this. They leave it to the Congress and the President and the people and the courts to decide what provide for means. Well, typically, doesn't it mean to uh, create an army, to do what is necessary to protect the borders? And I'm thinking of the terrorists who are coming across the southern border through Mexico, and I wonder... Um, if doesn't this clause mean that Congress has the responsibility to protect us from those crossings? Provide for the common defense, regardless of where it comes from. It could be a Pearl Harbor. It could be terrorists coming across the border. It could be an insurrection um, or a rebellion that happens within the United States. So it can mean a lot of different. How would they provide for it? Well, with money, with authorizations, with policy, with creating military branches and all of those kinds of things. All right, so that's in the introduction. Now, Section 2, um, drop down to that, to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Trade was not a really big deal back then. Trade back then was slow, and it was uh, basically confined. Uh, for the most part, we traded across the Atlantic with Europe. That was about it. Well, today we have a global economy, and it's just mind-boggling how American industries and, and European industries as well have spread throughout the world. And we have ships coming and going. There are thousands and thousands of ships out there right now carrying goods from every part of the world to the United States and from the United States to every part of the world. So regulating commerce with foreign nations is a very important power given to Congress. In Clause 3, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. And there again, um, my first thought when I see that is the southern border and rules of naturalization. Congress has passed those rules. They are in effect. We talked um, uh, last spring, I think it was, about how sad it was that the President of the United States has told the people in the area of immigration and naturalization, INS, to disregard some rules. We have a president. We even have members of Congress 
saying that all these people who crossed that border illegally should now become citizens. They should be given amnesty and they should be given a path to citizenship. Well, they violated the rules of naturalization that have been passed by Congress. So does that mean, is that a step towards becoming a nation? We've always been a nation of laws. Are we to become a nation without laws? Uh, just the word of the president or somebody in the Senate or somebody in the House of Representatives? It's a, a very challenging question. Moving on, Clause 4. To define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas. Now, that one is pretty much outmoded. Uh, back in those days, uh, a king uh, could give a sea dog, somebody like Francis Drake, um, authorization to go out and prey on French or Spanish ships and bring back the ships and the treasures, and uh, whether it's a merchant ship or a one of those uh, galleons, Spanish galleons that carried gold and silver back from uh, Central and South America, uh, whether it was one of those or a big fat merchant ship carrying uh, goods, uh, the pirates, uh, authorized pirates, I call them, uh, could just simply go out and grab these ships, ca capture them, and bring them back to Great Britain where they were paid off uh, for their price. Well, we don't. I don't think the United States ever did that. We might have done it during the War of 1812, uh, but uh, not since. So that one is pretty much out of date. Moving on, uh, that was already Clause 9, by the way. Uh, clause 10, and I highlighted this one in yellow, to declare a war. That's the big one. And it goes on, I'll come back to that, grant letters of mark and reprisal. Well, that's the letter that you give to the pirate saying he is authorized by the government to go out on prey in foreign ships and to make rules uh, concerning those the captures that they make on land and water. Okay, again, that's outmoded, but the first phrase is not to declare war. Congress has the power to declare war. The president does not. I am pretty sure that now Barack Obama is probably just as smart as you and me, and he probably knows um, that this section of the Constitution exists. He chooses to sweep it aside and ignore it. He did it in Libya two years ago. He sent air power uh, to bomb and participate in a rebellious campaign event against Muammar Gaddafi, their dictator, and uh, basically waved Congress aside. Well, he's doing it again in, in, in Iraq against ISIS, air attacks, which the American people support. But shouldn't he have gone to Congress? And this is another thing that really troubles me. World War II was the last time we declared war. In Korean War, we called it a United Nations action. Congress never declared war. In Vietnam, 58, more than 58,000 Americans died over there. Congress never declared war. Operation uh, Desert Storm in 1990, uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush went to Congress and asked for a resolution of support, meaning that they will pay for the operation and support it. And he got that. Now, to me, that is a declaration of war although they stopped short of calling it war. And war, war implies total, total, total power. You use all of your power uh, to defeat the enemy, to conquer the enemy. And I think that this president, George Herbert Walker Bush, basically wanted in and out. We didn't declare war 
on Iraq itself. We declared war on Iraq in Kuwait and drove them out of Kuwait, and then it was over. Same thing with President George W. Bush. He asked for resolutions uh, to make war, although he never used that word, to conduct operations against the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and just a little bit later against the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq. He got both resolutions. Now, to me, that's a declaration of war, so why don't we just call it war? And if we don't want to call it war, then let's don't do it. Let's don't do it at all, it seems to me. Let's be clear on that. And somebody, I know, you know, we got so many professional politicians in Congress. Uh, some of them are Democrats and some of them are Republicans that seem to be scared to death. Some of them speak out. But Congress does not take action against this president. They're allowing him to use the military as if he were a king or a dictator. He says he doesn't need Congress's authorization. He made that state statement very clearly. The Constitution says that he does. So that's another issue. And we'll be talking about that off and on during the year. Moving on to Clause 11, and this one is very simple um, in terminology, but very complex in, in terms of developing the policy. To raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. So in every two-year period, uh, Congress had to reauthorize uh, this raising and the support of the Army in the budget, and they did so. We didn't have much of military back then, uh, no standing army. George Washington feared a standing army, never asked for one. If they had a problem, as they did with the Whiskey Rebellion, for example, or Shays Rebellion, they could call, they could call out the militia, which they did. Uh, no standing army. And that would come much, much later. Uh, Clause 12, to provide and maintain a navy. So we had a navy, and within the navy was a Marine Corps, which, which be, had its beginning, its history begins, in the Revolutionary War against the British. So raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, and make the rules uh, that cover all of that in both land and naval forces. Air Force, uh, they never heard of. <laughs> they would be, I think, if they could come back uh, from the grave, they would be shocked to see these silver things flying about the skies. So that would uh, come much later, and we include it. Uh, within Congress's power to raise and support armies. As a matter of fact, our first Air Force, or our first air power group, was during World War II. No, it was actually during World War I, um, but formally during World War II, and it was known as the Army Air Corps. Army Air Corps. My dad was a pilot with that group. And it was a few years after the war was over with that Congress formally created the United States Air Force. All branches still have the air power, though. I'm, I, I diverse here. Let me get back. So as you can see, um, in Articles 2 through 9, 3, 9, 10, 11, and 12, Congress has a great deal of responsibility towards the foreign affairs of this country and, and all of the resources needed to support foreign affairs. Now let's jump to Article 2 and see what the Constitution says about the President. Section 2, 
clause one. Find that. And again, I'm sure you've already read this, but it's a very simple statement. And again, uh, where the Constitution is not creating a government, it's, it is basically creating the framework for government and giving power to branches of the government that would make it possible to protect the uh, national security and to protect the American people. So Clause 1, right away, the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states. So he is the commander. Okay? Does it say any place that he can go to war whenever he think, thinks that it's necessary? No, we don't see that. It's nowhere in the Constitution. Clause 2. He shall have the power, by and with advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties. So this sort of makes him the chief diplomat. Congress does not make treaties. The president does. So he can make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. In other words, if the president makes a treaty, then he has to have it approved by a two-thirds vote in the Senate. Many modern presidents have, uh, mostly beginning with uh, Lyndon Johnson, have skirted that uh, two-thirds requirement by simply not calling an agreement with a foreign country or with the United Nations. They simply don't call it a treaty. They call it something else. And therefore, they do it without any concurrence of Congress, and they basically are, are nibbling away at the power of checks and balances to maintain a democratic form of government. Reading on, he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls. In other words, he basically controls the foreign policy apparatus. Now, when George Washington was president, I suppose he uh, looked around and considered and, and read the Constitution and thought about all the things he had to do. And he probably had a moment where he said, oh, my goodness. This is huge. I need help. So he did go to Congress, and he asked for four departments um, that would help him to enforce the law. So he would be the chief executive. So here we go, commander-in-chief, chief diplomat, chief executive. That's a huge job. So he asked for four departments. Congress gave it to him. To him, he, the, the post office department, the Treasury Department, the War Department, and today we call it Defense. It was the War Department then, and the State Department, headed by a Secretary of State. And the first Secretary of State was, do you know? I'll bet some of you do. His name was Thomas Jefferson, a very sharp individual, later on to become president. So um, these ambassadors, public ministers, consuls that deal in our foreign affairs are appointed by the president and with the advice and consent of the Senate, meaning that they must be approved by the Senate, and that is done by a simple majority vote. Now, you might notice that um, Attorney General Holder recently resigned, and it will be up to the president to select a replacement, make the appointment, and the appointment will go to Congress and to the Senate, that is, and the Senate will debate it, and they will vote on it and either approve or disapprove that nomination. So I, 
probably, you know, people are wondering right now what President Obama is going to do. Um, it looks like Republicans are going to take the Senate in the November election. So right now, Congress is not meeting. They're out there campaigning. Will the president all of a sudden do what he did with the NLRB thing and say, well, Congress is in recess, so in their absence, I'm appointing so-and-so to attorney general. So everybody is watching and waiting to see if the president is going to do that. I kind of expect he will because he is not going to get a radical liberal like Holder appointed to uh, the position of attorney general if Republicans hold the Senate. It simply won't happen. So keep an eye on that. Let's see what happens. And we're in a point where I think we need to decide, the American people need to decide, and I think we are there now. We're sort of at a tipping point. Does the Constitution matter? I know there are a lot of people on the left that say, no, it doesn't matter. It's a hindrance. It's an impediment. It's an obstruction. We need to just forget about it. It's old, antiquated, written for the 18th century. doesn't apply to us in the 21st century. So there are a lot of people saying that. And um, that's kind of a frightening thing when you stop and think about what the consequences could be. And let's move on. In uh, Section 3, move on from Clause 2 to Section 3. Down near the bottom, it says, He, meaning the president, shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. Now, from this, we interpret that to mean that the president will receive ambassadors and other public ministers and conduct foreign policy, negotiate, bargain, diplomacy, and all the kinds of things uh, necessary to have a relationship with a foreign country. So very scant, really, and you might want to go back to those one, uh, just basically three, three phrases in Clause 1, 2, and Section 3 that um, basically empower the president as chief diplomat to conduct our affairs, to go out there and make the treaties and bring them back for approval. And one last thing um, I'd like to point out to you, and I don't think we're going to go through this, but if you would turn, and I should have given this um, to you earlier, but I didn't, but if you would turn to Article 1, Section 10, very quickly, please. Now, if you read the first um, two phrases in, in Clause 1, uh, you've got the theme for the entire section. Or for, these, for, for clauses one, two, and three anyway. Uh, no state shall enter, enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal. In other words, um, all those powers that were given to Congress in Article One, Section 8, this is confirming, this is making sure, making sure you guys understand out there uh, with your big ports and your big harbors that you cannot do, the, uh, you cannot exercise the powers given to Congress. So this is basically a double statement. Clause 2, uh, states uh, shall not without the consent of Congress lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports for foreign trade. That power is given to Congress. In Clause 3, no state shall, I like this one, without the consent of Congress lay any duty of tonnage, referring to foreign trade, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war. 
caveat unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. That's more or less outmoded also. In those days, if a, an attack on Georgia came across the Spanish border in Florida, it would take weeks and weeks and weeks uh, for Washington, D.C. to respond uh, to the crisis. So Georgia, presumably, as had been the, the history, would call out its own militia and uh, defend itself. So in that case, that is permitted by the Constitution. Okay, so the power for foreign affairs is given to the Congress and to the President and, of course, the United States Supreme Court and other federal courts can weigh in by interpreting law in the area of foreign affairs. And the American people have the final power. American people, or a majority of the American people, a pretty good majority of the American people, did not like what was going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. They blamed President Bush. They blamed President Clinton. And, excuse me. They, uh, President Bush and, and um, of course, they blamed Republicans as a connection. And they basically turned the White House over to President Barack Obama, the Democrat. Didn't like eight years of Bush policy, liked it at first. The longer it went out, the less, the less it was liked, and the more people turned against it. So it gave a victory to the Democratic Party and to President Barack Obama, uh, who won a second term and is still in power. Now, there is a lot of discussion in the media right now. A lot of it you can't believe. Uh, media, those guys are out there to make money, and the liberal media is out there to promote the president, to protect him. Uh, they're giving you very little information about what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. If you want to know, then you have to go to sources like Fox News if you want to know all of the facts about what is going on in the Middle East. Now, Fox News is decidedly conservative, and I urge you not to be influenced by that. I urge you to keep an open mind and think for yourself, be objective, and you decide based on what you know about the Constitution and American history, what is best for the United States. So the American people have a chance coming up on November the 4th, uh, not too far away now, uh, to change the Senate. And if they are angry about foreign policy, and people are saying that foreign policy is a big issue, and it does, is going to have a big effect on how they vote. Uh, then we'll see what they do. And then two years after that, we'll elect a new president. So keep an eye on those kinds of discussions in the media and make up your own mind. So let's get into ISIS and the Middle East. Now, first of all, let's talk about the world today without American leadership. And uh, watching uh, President Obama very, very carefully over the uh, six and a half years of the administration, it has become very clear to me that he wants to take America in a new direction. Absolutely no to isolationism. Absolutely no to unilateral behavior like attacking um, Iraq or Afghanistan or anybody else. He wants to merge and blend American power into European United Nations power. 
He wants to become part of the global leadership community. He wants to be America to be a single voice, no louder than the other voices coming out of the European United Nations entity. All right, so he's basically withdrawn us from Iraq. President Bush said that he would withdraw from Iraq when commanders on the ground told him that Iraq was stable, that their military was uh, prepared to defend the nation state, and they could stand on their own two feet. Now, by the time of the election in 2008, that did not happen. President Obama immediately uh, announced plans to withdraw from Iraq, which he did, and says that we will withdraw also from Afghanistan next summer. Well, the terrorists were very glad to hear that. And um, they were prepared uh, to take action once that happened. And if you take a – he also pulled out – he took our missiles out of Eastern Europe uh, that protected uh, European countries and NATO uh, members from an attack from the Soviet Union, from Russia, which still is a very belligerent and aggressive nation. So we withdraw our leadership. Uh, we're not going to play a role. We're not, we're not going to be involved except through the international community. We're not going to bomb nuclear facilities in Iran. President Bush might have done that. President Reagan certainly would have done that. But he is not going to do that. We're going to negotiate. We're going to talk. Uh, we're going to let uh, the people know everywhere that uh, we are a nation of peace and goodwill and we do not want war regardless of what happens, how many innocent people are slaughtered. We are not going to get involved as a leader nation. That's been his attitude for six and a half years until about two weeks ago. And we will get into that. But as we sit here, in 2010, we had the beginning of the Arab Spring. Three years later, we got nine countries up in flames. Conflict, thousands dead, governments changing hands. The United States does nothing except for a brief bombing attack in Libya. An American embassy is destroyed. Four people, including the ambassador, killed. We do nothing. We didn't even try to arrest the perpetrators. Not so long ago, Russia grabbed Crimea, which was a the southwestern southeastern corner of the Ukraine. They just took it. They just marched in with military power and took it. The United States did nothing. Now they are equipping and um, instigating separatists in eastern Ukraine, and they have a very large number, several thousand troops, poised on the border of eastern Ukraine. And I don't know if you can see that from your Middle East map or not. Um, it is fairly close. depends on the scale that you have. And um, again, we're doing nothing. We could be sending over military equipment. We could be sending over advisors. We could be sending over missiles. Um, just as a show of strength, just as a show to Russia and their leader, Vladimir Putin, no, we're not going to let you do this. Uh, but we haven't even done that. So uh, 
so you have basically chaos in many different places. And, and very quietly, I'm sure that the Chinese uh, government is just smiling very, very quietly and knowingly because as all of these crises go on and occupy our attention and uh, threaten us and cause us high alert, China is very slowly and surely expanding their power base into the waters of the East China Sea, the South China Sea, conflict with Japan, conflict with South Korea, conflict with Taiwan, uh, creating a larger navy that's now sailing into waters that were once sailed by United States aircraft carriers. And we are not responding to that. Somebody was saying the other day, I think it was like a year and a half ago, uh, President Obama said, we're going to uh, focus our attention to the Pacific Rim. In other words, we're going to bolster our strength in the Western Pacific where we have allies, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Philippines. And um, <laughs> after a year and a half of having said that, he has done nothing at all, no new policy whatsoever towards establishing the Pacific Rim. So basically we're looking at a, word, a world today without American leadership. And um, in some respects, in some areas, it is falling apart with question, without question. So let's get into it. Um, we'll begin today and probably continue in the next session. So what is ISIS? Right, I mean, right now, what is ISIS? So you know what the letters stand for? Islamic State in Syria or Iraq and Syria or Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. Now, a caliphate, they have recently announced that they are, ISIS, ISIL is a caliphate. Now, that, that's basically an is Islamic state. Now, you think of our separation of church and state over here. We don't allow re religion to play a, a role uh, of power and authority in our government whatsoever. But a caliphate would establish a religious state, a state ruled by religion, and the religion is Islam. And it would be led by a supreme religious political leader, of uh, uh, Ayatollahs, uh, more or less, known as a caliph. He would be the caliph. And he would be deemed in their rituals as the successor to Muhammad, who founded this religion back, back in the 7th century Anno Domini. So the succession of Muslim empires that followed, that have existed in the Muslim world, let's say, are usually described as caliphates. Well, apparently that's what ISIS is trying to do. And, and in the sense of geographic concept, a caliphate is a political body that represents a sovereign state of the entire Muslim faithful, ruled by a caliph, under Islamic law, which you sometimes see in the media, as Sharia. Sharia law is Islamic law. So the Muslim faithful, now we have 12 million Americans of Muslim descent here in America. Most of them are wonderful people. I have a couple of friends that, uh, from Lebanon that um, operate a restaurant in downtown, in my downtown city. And I usually go down there twice a week and get a takeout order and take it over to where my wife teaches, and we have lunch together. And I have, have talks with him, and he is very alarmed, very upset. In fact, recently, uh, he and his sister, who owned this restaurant, went back to Lebanon to visit their family. And while they were there, ISIS 
which um, is strong in both Syria and Iraq, had come across the border into Lebanon and massacred, slaughtered an entire village. And they did things of unspeakable horror to women and children in that village. And I'm thinking, wow, if I was president of the United States, I'd have a full military force over there in a second to protect those women and children from these monsters that call themselves a caliphate. So 12 million Americans are Muslims, and most of them are like my friends down at the restaurant. They're just wonderful people. They get up in the morning and they go to work. They pay their taxes. They love freedom. And I think we're we're finding, although there's a lot of research to be done, and you'll see it in the media over the next few months, about the reactions in the other nations of the Middle East, big uh, important nations with a lot, a lot of money and a lot of military power, like Saudi Arabia, for example, or Egypt, for example. Even Jordan uh, has greater military strength than, than does ISIS. So how are they reacting? Uh, from what we're hearing so far, uh, several of those Muslim countries have made public statements with the United States and against ISIL. So this seems to be the president's focus right now. It's organizing as many countries as possible, especially many in the Middle East, to join together and, and, uh, and just create a monstrous force against ISIS expansion. Now, background, um, just very quickly, ISIS was formed in 2006, and at that time they called themselves the Islamic State in Iraq, but they were, I'm kind of amused that um, President Obama basically didn't seem to know about this, or at least he says, uh, gives indications that he didn't, but we knew about it in 2006, and uh, it was basically a branch of al-Qaeda in Iraq. You might remember that during Desert Storm, al-Qaeda moved into Iraq to organize people and uh, recruit people and mount a, a revolution, a rebellion, counter-rebellion against the Americans and their Iraqi friends <coughs> in Baghdad. And um, the Al-Qaeda, so we started calling it AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Well, that basically morphs into ISI, Islamic State in Iraq. And so it basically is the same thing. In 2010, once uh, the Arab Spring, that uh, rebellion begins to uh, shape up in Syria, well, ISI, IC, ISA, went into Syria uh, to participate in the rebellion and attacks against the uh, uh, government of, of Syria. And so they grow and they develop and they argue with al-Nusra, which is another branch of al-Qaeda. And they finally, um, they have more power and more influence. They take away 80% of Nusra and make it ISIS. And then they call themselves ISIS and they come back into Iraq. And in 2013, 
a year and a half ago, proclaimed self-proclaimed status as a caliphate. Right now, even as we speak, ISIS currently controls territory in southeastern Syria, north and west Iraq. They have a large number of troops just west of Baghdad. ISIS claims complete religious authority over all Muslims across the world and aims to bring, their aim is to bring most of the Muslim inhabited regions of the world under its political control. And they're beginning um, in the Middle East, in the Levant, and their headquarters, their nation state, their caliphate is right now Iraq and Syria. And that's where the beginning is. Now they are calling on all Muslims throughout the world, all Muslim nations throughout the Middle East and the rest of the world, uh, North Africa, uh, places like Malaysia and Indonesia, which are Muslim countries, uh, to join the caliphate and support and be loyal to the caliphate. Now, uh, the particularly troubling thing here, and I don't think they're going to accomplish this, um, they just don't have the size and the power. But um, they do have the ability to excite more rebellion, more conflict, more violence in other parts of the world, including in the United States. And you know what happened out in Moore, Oklahoma, uh, last week. Um, so we are beginning to see evidence of, of ISIS, the ISIS appeal and the ISIS call to arms or call to jihad to all members, uh, all Muslims of the Islam faith uh, to join in and do what they can. So we begin in the Levant, and right now their focus is on they would love to conquer and establish the caliphate in these countries. Look at your map, Jordan, Israel, and that would mean killing all the Jews, and they have already shown that they're willing to do that. Palestine, Lebanon, Cyprus, out in the Mediterranean, and part of southern Turkey. This is a sophisticated organization. They are digital. They communicate digitally. They have oil production crews, technicians and engineers. Wherever they go, especially around Mosul, they conquered Fallujah and then Mosul. These are countries that we had liberated, Americans died to liberate these cities uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and now ISIS has taken them back, and they have taken control of the oil wells. They are, they are right now enjoying 3 to $4 million a day of revenue from those oil wells, and they are funneling it, smuggling it through Turkey out into the black market where several different countries that want cheap oil are buying it. I wouldn't be surprised if some of our European allies are buying that oil. wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, so they have, um, they have a $2 billion bank account. They just have a lot of money. Uh, they, they, uh, just in terms of their sophistication, they're led by a guy with a Ph.D. Uh, and these are smart people, very well-educated people. They are highly organized. They have launched large and very complex military operations. These are very, very sophisticated people. It's not just a bunch of ragtab rebels in Syria and Iraq. These are a force to be reckoned with. 
So meanwhile, as I said, uh, Muslims around the world, anywhere, any country, in your hometown, in mine, have been urged and encouraged by ISIS to carry out jihad in their own way. Mm-hmm. And the recent yeah. murder and, and beheading in uh, Moore, Oklahoma, is just one of several across the wor- world. And I hear Felice, and I think perhaps we're running out of time. We are going to take some questions, Woody. So um, it was very informative and a really good catch-up on uh, what is going on. And so um, the beheading was one of the interesting uh, points that came up. And this was a a question that was sent in, and it's more of a, um, you know, uh, well, it's part, part question and part statement. And um, and it, it has to do with that. So I'll ask you that one first. So I, I apologize to the questions coming in that they're not in, in perfect order. But uh, the question was, um, how can President um, Obama say the beheading in Oklahoma was an act of violence instead of calling it a ter- terrorist act, especially uh, when the person committing the murder was shouting Islamic slanders and, and slogans, um, not slander, but was shouting Islamic slogans and then they made um so that was the first part of the question so is there anything that you can you know say to that because they their take on it was you know it seems you know it's like five weeks before the midterm elections and we're calling it workplace violence and eight weeks before the 2012 elections Benghazi was supposed to be because of a video um, you know, which when I heard that, I thought that is just the stupidest thing in the world. They're not going to be, you know, bombing, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Um, because of a video. And, of course, you know, we still at, at this point in 2014 have not gotten to the bottom of that. So I guess the okay. question is, is this political? Oh, definitely, uh, and, and it's not—it's not not just Obama. It's the liberal media. It's the whole liberal community. There are millions and millions of Americans who are liberal, and um, they really. I was watching some interviews of some of these people uh, recently. They were at an, at an ACLU conference, and it was really amazing. Their take—it just seemed like one of them was a college professor. It just seemed like they had no no education, like they. I think basically, to a large extent, many liberals are people who have never really studied history, and they have mm-hmm. never studied the mentality of history. And it, you know, it's that whole community that's saying that this is workplace violence. And of course, to us, you know, to sensible people, uh, whether you're moderate or conservative, that that just doesn't make sense. And what you're trying to do, and we've also noticed, and I'm, I urge you to um, uh, do some research. I am definitely going to. In fact, I have been. I'm going to continue. Um, President Obama won't even re- use the word Muslim or Islam in reference to ISIS. He calls them violent extremists. Never mentions jihad, never mentions Islam, never mentions Muslim. It's as if he is trying to change the American attitude towards that kind of horrible brutality mm-hmm. or towards, uh, towards Islam itself. Um, 
and we should. I mean, as President Bush put it, I mean, just a few hours after uh, 9-11, President Bush uh, addressed the nation and was very emphatic that Muslims are good people, 90, 90, 95%, just good, wonderful people just like us. But still, ISIS is, I mean, look at the name, what it calls itself, Islamic State. So, no, let's don't call it workplace violence. Let's, let's call it Islamic, or if you want to, extremist Islamic murder or violence. Mm -hmm. uh, let's call it what it is, because, and that's a very good question, and it's, um, come, it will come up constantly. And if you'll recall, um, back um, during the a couple of years ago, Fort, Fort Hood uh, uh, killing, where a, a a major in the United States Army who was uh, basically got taken in by Muslim Muslim radicalization. Uh, he was on the internet communicating with Al Qaeda. And then uh, he decides to murder nine people and wounded several others, shouting uh, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, uh, basically a battle cry, uh, Allah is great, while he was murdering people. They called that one workplace violence. So it's basically part of the liberal mentality. And if you say uh, radical extreme Islamic violence, they will say, well, that's not politically correct. So That's okay. So, you can say anything you want to say. You have freedom of speech, and if they want to say you're politically incorrect, then say so. You can uh, shout back and say, well, why don't you go get an education, and yeah, then you'll understand. It, to me, there isn't a purpose in that, you know, and not understanding that these are all, you know, it just is coincidence that, you know, they showed, um, ISIS showed a video of beheading, and now we've got these copycat things here in the in the United States, and I'm sure this is not going to be the last of it. And um, to me, it's just a matter of connecting the dots, and I just can't understand how they can't. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to go out of order on the questions because they're tying in. Um, Abigail asks, what is the difference between radical Muslims and ISIS? There's no difference. ISIS is radical, Muslim or Islam, it is radical or extremist. Extreme, you know what that word means, extreme? Uh, extreme might be something that you have never encountered in your lifetime. You could go through your entire life without ever seeing or being visited by or involved in anything that is truly extreme. But ISIS is extreme. I mean, I'm not going to talk about because it bothers me so much, the unspeakable horrors that they are visiting on people in Iraq and Syria and even Lebanon. It's horrible. And they're doing it in the name of Allah, in the name of Islam, in the name of Jihad. And there is no hiding from that. So very good question. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, a couple of other questions here. Let me grab my screen. Um, and that is, um, how big is the threat of ISIS, um, especially um, in regard to, you know, you've, you've gone over some of those, but um, 
you know, I, I guess the question um, is in regard to the U.S. A threat to us, um, they are a very significant threat to us. And we think that they're working in um, concert with what um, al-Qaeda in Iraq or al-Qaeda in Syria, when we drove them out of Pakistan, they went to northwest Syria. And uh, their, basically their goal, as, as opposed to ISIS, is to uh, focus on clandestine attacks on European and American uh, sites. Now, if, if in fact they are allied or, or even a part of ISIS, then this is a far more serious threat than we have ever seen before. Now, we can, I mean, we're not going to panic or anything like that, because since 9-11, we've created a huge, highly efficient and very technological, highly high-technology intelligence service. We have stopped over 300 attacks on the United States. We've put 90 terrorists in jail. Uh, since since 2001. So regardless of how ISIS or anybody else tries to carry out uh, massive attacks inside the United States, it's going to be very difficult for them to do that. But all I'm saying is this is the greatest threat we've seen. I suppose you could say al-Qaeda in, in 2000 or 2001 was a greater threat because we were essentially asleep and not expecting it. Well, now mm -hmm. we are awake and we are expecting it, and we are looking right. for it. And uh, if you go with the George Bush philosophy, let's go over there and wipe out ISIS. Let's take the fight to them so it doesn't come into our cities and towns and countryside. But that's just me. Yeah. No, I agree. And, you know, there was a comment in the chat room that basically said, you know, because a lot of people have, um, have this thought, not just this person here, but it says, why would Obama who is thought to be a Muslim, try to bomb his own brethren in religion. And why do you think Obama is trying so hard not to mention the name Muslim, the Muslim group? You know, because, I mean, that well, has been an underpinning that people, you know, he said he's a Christian, but, you know, it, it, most people think he does have ties to Muslim. That's a very astute um, question and, and observation, and one that I have considered myself. I've heard the conspiracy theories, and I've heard the um, whispers. Um, is this man, Barack Hussein Obama, whose father was Muslim, who went to school in uh, Muslim schools, not for his entire career, but for a significant portion of it, is he in fact Muslim? Mm -hmm. When he was president, he bowed to the uh, Saudi Arabian king. That's something that Muslims do. It's not something that Americans do. We don't bow to anything except our own God. He bowed mm -hmm. uh, very significantly low at the waist. So there are a lot of uh, things that you can grab, a lot of straws that you can grab and say, okay, this man's a Muslim. Um, but the fact is he has authorized, and for the last three weeks we have been bombing ISIS targets. Uh, so yes, he is. If he is a Muslim, then he is bombing other Muslims. But there are an awful lot of people in Iraq and Syria that are Muslims that despise ISIS and hate ISIS and fear ISIS. Uh, there are Muslims yeah. all over the world that will not support ISIS. I don't think they'll ever have their worldwide caliphate. I don't think they're going to do it. Although. Um, they might be the biggest threat we have seen so far. 
in our history with the Middle East, and they are a real threat to the oil supply. Uh, they could br potentially bring down the world economy if they were able to expand further south, say, into Saudi Arabia. Um, that we are bombing them with three allies who are also participating. We'll talk about that next time. And um, people are saying, and um, they are certainly correct, that bombing is not going to stop ISIS. They'll hide away in the cities. They'll hide away. They'll come out at night, and they'll carry out their missions. They will adapt. Um, there's going to have to be soldiers. There's going to have to be divisions. Doesn't necessarily have to be American. It could be Saudi. It could be Jordanian. It could be a mixture, Egyptian. They all have much bigger military systems than ISIS. It could be a consortium of countries. It could be NATO. But um, it's going to take yeah. that to stop. A couple more real quick. Um, someone asked, um, is there a man that they call ISIS? Um, no, um, that earlier. I think they came. ISIS is, ISIS is ISIS is the organization. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the current leader is, uh, like I said, a man with a PhD in Islamic studies. He was born and raised in uh, in Iraq, and uh, he basically grew up fighting um, against the Americans during Iraqi freedom. He became a member of Al Qaeda, and then he became a member of ISIS. ISA, ISI, and then he became just rising through the ranks, a very capable individual apparently, uh, very uh, very good on the battlefield, so to speak, and uh, very intelligent. And now he is the leader of ISIS, and he is the caliph of ISIS, and his name is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, he has been in news quite a bit, and I'm sure that you have seen that name, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Just spell Baghdad and put an I on the end of it, al-Baghdadi. And um, go to your search engine and find him and, and read about him. He's a very capable individual, and I suspect he has surrounded himself with very capable individuals. That's where their degree of sophistication compared to any other terrorist organization we've seen. Their degree of sophistication is much higher. And um, it's his leadership, apparently, that's made that possible. But like President Obama, he is surrounded by people, and they they talk and they debate and they argue and they reach consensus and they decide uh, policy. And uh, they've had, as we've seen, quite a bit of success in doing that. Yeah, very good. Um, and the last question here, and uh, we're out of time, um, is what do you think about the White House break-ins? You know, very interesting that recently there has been a lot of um, White House break-ins. I think uh, that and many, many other things, some of which we're talking about here, I think they boil down to leadership. And the leadership, uh, President Truman, President of the United States, remember he had that placard on his desk that said, the buck stops here. In other words, it's my responsibility. If the Security Council is doing its job, then that's because you've got a strong leader in the White House. If the, uh, the Secret Service agents begin to go lax in their attentions to security issues of the White House or of the president and his person or of the first lady or of the children, if they're going lax, then you, it is a, la a lack of leadership.
Mm, the that's lack very of interesting. Up. Very interesting. I mean, guys in the Secret Service, they're very capable people. But um, they have to be kept on their toes, let's put it that way. So I was, you know, to tell you the truth, and I hate to say it, you uh, might think ill of me for saying it, but I was somewhat amused by the whole thing. I would not have been okay. amused if there had if there had been a death, but obviously, right. but, uh, I can just see this yeah. guy hopping over the fence and running across the lawn. In he goes, and up the hallway he goes, and nobody sees him. Nobody right. sees him. That's just well, unthinkable. The sad, sad thing is, uh, you know, I don't want them to to have to block that. You know, this is a beautiful um, view from the fence for those of us who have been in D.C. to be able to see the White House, and I'm just a afraid that all of these incidences they're going to start blocking, you know, all those areas off to tourists because of that. So I'm pretty sure they will that. for a while. Yep. Yeah. And um you're gonna see a tremendous increase in the number of uh Secret Surf a- a- agents in the area. Many of them remember once I took a group of Norwegian students, exchange students, to Washington D C and uh we went to look see the White House uh through the gates. And this uh, young man comes up and uh, wants to know. He's just really friendly and happy and outgoing. He wants to know if um, we wanted him to take our picture. And so we said, sure. And he asked us who we were and you know, how long, what we were doing, how long we were going to be in Washington, D.C. and all that. And uh, so we all lined up, all 15 of us, and he took our photograph. And, and um, he just kind of hung around the area, and we finally left. But um, as we're going to another place, we circled uh, back a couple of hours past that same spot, and there he was talking to other people. He was a Secret Service agent, I in you know just in civilian clothing, acting like a college student. So I don't know if that program was suspended or ended. Um, it's very difficult to say how this guy got over the fence and all the way up into the East Room. It's amazing right. that he could do that. Yeah seems like the undercover thing is a really good idea, you know. You just think right. that he, yeah, very interesting. Well, we are going to be meeting um, every two weeks, uh, so be looking for the audios. And also there are a lot of audios in the archives that you have access to. So for those of you joining us um Remember that we are going to be recording every two weeks. We are live right here at Current Issues in the Constitution at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Um, If you want to send your questions, as some of you did ahead of time, that's great. And uh, also be looking for a handout. And uh, we will have that for you in the, um, the post that resides on this page so you can get that as well. Woody, thank uh, Lise, you so could I much. mention one thing sure, uh, before absolutely. our audience tunes us out? Um, I am, am scheduled for a total knee replacement surgery uh, next Thursday. So okay. for our next meeting, which would be the 15th, um, I am not going to be in any condition to prepare for that. Um, okay. Now, I think I can do that. Never mind. Let's go ahead and keep it on the 15th. Um, if on the 9th or the 10th anything happens and uh, I'm not going to be able to do the 15th, then, I'm, then I'll yeah. call you and let you know. Yeah. But right now, um, let's may... just keep it on the 15th. I can think I can sit here where I am and prop my leg up on a pillow and put ice on the 
incision. Or we can even do it. We can even. I'd help me ignore the discomfort. We can do it ahead of time. I, I'm looking here because I've already told them you're having their surgery, and they, uh, Bethany's uh, posted. We'll be praying for Professor Woody. And um, well, my dad, my dad had that surgery, and and it went well. So, good. Um, yeah. So we'll That's we'll keep sign. you in our prayers. Yeah, and like I said, you know, we can um, we'll let everyone know. Uh, not a problem if you come here, and we're not here, then you'll know. Uh, to, there's I can leave show notes here on this website. So, uh, just look at our chat box, and you'll find information here and there. Like I said, there are a lot of other videos. I don't number them. Um, sequentially, but I would say that there's at least 20 or so audios here of really good information um, that were issues uh, such as the EPA, Common Core, Agenda 21, um, Welfare System, Gun Control, Debt Crisis, American Family Values and Freedom, the Legalization of Pot, <laughs> uh, Overspending, uh, Healthcare, and so on and so forth. So. That we covered a lot of information um, this year um, on this show, so you can go to the archives definitely and get caught up on some of those um, issues that are, you know continue to plague us. But we um, covered them, Woody covered them with an eye to the Constitution, which really brings it into light. And I think something else you'll enjoy is um, one of the um, children listening said um, that they, oh, Bethany wants to do a report on ISIS now after hearing the session. So see how schoolers yeah. just give themselves their own assignments, Woody. I love it. Excellent, yes. Remember to use primary sources as much as possible in compiling your report. Right, right. And you've um, in that handout, um, Bethany, if you got that, it does have a website that is very good for primary sources. That's right here. So. Yeah, you can also uh, so uh, go 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 to your search engine and type in uh, Al Baghdadi speech um, or Al Baghdadi quotes, uh, and get that that's primary source material too. Get his own work. Let him tell you what his intentions are and include that in your report. Very good. Before we leave, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Media Angels. Visit MediaAngels.com. All right, Woody. Well, you take care. And um, like I said, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And you, um, many of you are on the email list for this network and that alerts you to what's going on and if I need to send out another quick email to everyone I will. So um, take care and thank you so much Woody. Thank you Felice. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Current Issues in the Constitution. If you'd like to join us live, visit our show page on ultimatehomeschoolradionetwork.com and for more information about Professor Wilson's classes, visit AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com. See you next week.